0: Well, come with me. We are in the book of Acts. We've made it all the way into the middle of chapter 2, and that's where we're going to come this morning. It is now 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. The word Pentecost means 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after, the, uh, after Passover, and Jesus died on the Passover. It is only a few days after Jesus ascended to the Father. That was a big deal. The Holy Spirit has arrived exactly as He promised many times, as Jesus promised many times. And it happened in the very same room where these 120 people had gathered together just days before uh, where they... Uh, put forth Matthias to replace Judas, who had killed himself after he had betrayed the lord Jesus Christ, and now Matth- Matthias is the new twelfth apostle. It was probably all the same room from where Jesus held that final Passover with his men. It was a, a large upper room in Jerusalem where the one hundred and twenty met. It was a big place of some kind. Well, what happened let 's get a running start on our text for today by looking back to the beginning of the chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues... "...as of fire distributing themselves." The, the words imply that there was probably a fire, a picture, something looked like a ball of fire, and then from that little tongues broke off, uh, distributed, separated, and uh, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance." So they're gathered, probably praying. God sent this miraculous sound, uh, probably like a tornado or a hurricane was raging, except nothing was being blown by a wind. It was the sound like that, this in- incredible sound. He also sent a miraculous visual manifestation as, those, as if tongues of fire broke apart and rested On each of the ones in that room. Would that be something to see? Well, a crowd heard the sound and they began to gather to see what was happening. And then came the other miracle. All those that gathered in that room began to speak the mighty deeds of God, but they spoke in languages that they did not know but they were the native languages of the people in Jerusalem who were visiting from all the places around the Roman Empire for the Feast of Pentecost. At least 16 different languages or distinct dialects of languages are mentioned in verses 9 through 11. That was the first ever manifestation of the gift of tongues or gift of languages. As 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22 explains, that was part of the, the signs that God gave to unbelieving Israel, validating what Jesus said. Remember, after His miracles, the leaders of the, of the Jews said, yeah, we see the miracles. They're all done by the power of Satan. That man is satanic. And Jesus said, you're kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. God was going to turn His back on Israel for a time, and, and that's the time in which we live. Well, tongues was a sign that that was happening, that God was now going to be bringing those Jews who did believe and all the Gentiles who believed together into one new entity, not the nation of Israel, but the body of Christ. We know there were 120 believers initially in that room, and it was an astounding thing that they were part of. We know that they knew of the promise of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had mentioned on that very day that He ascended, but there's no reason to think that they were even remotely prepared for the miracles of the sound, the fire, and the foreign languages. Look down to verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, like somebody set off a siren echoing through Jerusalem, come see what this is about, and they were bewildered because each of them, each one of them, was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we have been born? This great crowd came to find out what was going on. Now, they promptly snarked about Galileans. You know, what can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's a little tiny village up in the, up in the mountains where the, where the rednecks live. No good thing would come out of Nazareth. These are all Galileans, and they were all Galileans then, because at least the apostles, because uh, Judas was the only Judean among them, and he was gone. He'd be replaced with another Galilean. So um, they just thought, well, it's impossible that people from that redneck area of Galilee would know other languages. <laughs> all the more amazing. You know, if it was a you know, a college of linguistics... Maybe you'd think somebody could pull that off. Not so here. But what was going on was undeniable. Skip down to verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? (laughs) Cue Peter for the sermon that we're going to start looking at today. He's going to explain what does this mean. But others... We're mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. As always, when God does something, there are the ones who ridicule it. People who don't believe what they see or hear about God are quick to dismiss it with a, with a joke or to demean the people who make them uncomfortable with their message. And in this case, the, the mockers accuse the apostles and all the others of being drunk. Well, that's what we're going to put in today. Now, that scene, chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, is the first evangelistic sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And today we're going to get through verse 23. Maybe next time, the rest of the sermon, but I reserve the right to give up on that idealistic view about Wednesday when I get that. Well, we'll see. Today, verses 14 through 23, it's pretty easy to outline it. Number one, this is really important verse 14. Number two, this is not what you suppose, verse 15. Number three, this is from the prophet Joel, verse 16. Number four, this is God's plan, verses 17 through 21. And number five, this is about Jesus. And why is it all here? So will you call on the Lord and be saved? Let's look in at verse uh, 14. This is really important. Now we know Peter, if you've read the Gospels, he was he was a, a very strong personality, a strong natural leader, if you will. Among the disciples, he was always named first in the lists of them. He was always the first one to, you know, to speak up, good or bad. Um, we know he hit bottom when he cringed and cursed before a servant girl who said, weren't you a follower of Jesus the night that he was arrested? But now... He's been restored, and today we meet the spirit-filled version of Peter, who's going to be the number one spokesman for the early years of this new era. Now as witnesses, eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, all 11 of the other apostles stood with him with their full support. I picture them standing as a group with Peter stepping forward and being the, the speaker Chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice. That's what you do when there's no amplification and you got a huge crowd. He raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Now you might be wondering, with all of those languages going on, Uh, Here you have one speaker. What did he speak? Well, we don't know. Most likely Aramaic. That was the uh, dialect of Hebrew that was the vernacular language of the Jews uh, in that era. But having heard all of these different languages, now it's one speaker, one message. And he addresses them, men of Judea. That refers to to the residents of that area, area, the ones that lived in Jerusalem and the areas surrounding um, Jerusalem, like Bethany, maybe, maybe as far as Bethlehem, a few miles away. And not only them, but all you who live in Jerusalem, that refers to the ones who were temporarily living in Jerusalem, the ones who had come from all over to come to the Feast of Pentecost, as happened every year, several times in Jerusalem. Peter was following normal, polite, public protocol when he said, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. They've just been saying, what does this mean? What's going on here? And so when he says, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, Peter is saying, I'm glad you asked. This is really important This is a sermon that did not need any man-made introduction to try to to capture the attention of the hearers. There had already been a three-pronged introduction to get the people interested. There was that mighty sound. There were those tongues of fire and a hundred and twenty people stepping out into the crowd, speaking fluently of God's mighty deeds and speaking it fluently in languages they did not know. Yeah, this is something important. Now secondly, Peter and the others had heard what was being said. Uh, what does this mean? But he starts out with refuting that silly thing the scoffers said that these people, including the apostles, were all drunk. Now, I've been around some drunk people. I have never heard them speak eloquently of the mighty deeds of God, especially not in languages they don't know. They forget the one they do know if they're drunk enough. Verse 15, it didn't take long to refute this. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. How does he deal with that? Well, that's absurd. It was only the third hour of the day by Jewish reckoning, three hours from sunup, so roughly nine o'clock in the morning. And even people who are drunkards were not usually inebriated so as to do strange things by nine o'clock in the morning, let alone a hundred and twenty of them all in one place at one time, all doing the same thing, let alone declaring the mighty deeds of God. So this is really important. These people are not intoxicated. Number three, verse 16, this is from the prophet Joel. Now what you're going to see this morning, it's one of the most fascinating passages of the New Testament in many respects, and I'll say a little bit about that later, but I want you to realize the whole point of this is this is another of the several connections that we've already been seeing between the events of the book of Acts and the Old Testament Scriptures. This is important. These people are not drunk, verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the, through the prophet Joel. Obviously, Peter already had been given special insight from the Holy Spirit, presumably the other apostles as well, concerning what was going on. And, and don't, you, don't you wish that there was a, a footnote there that would give us the Bible references? Which mighty deeds of God were they talking about? <laughs> well, probably a lot of them, and probably the people that spoke more than one language might have gotten to hear even more than those who only spoke one or, or two but those weren't the only things that make the connection and that, that show us that this is the next step in unveiling God's plan of redemption. He planned it before the foundation of the world. He predicted these things that would happen before they did. He sent His Son in the fullness of time at exactly the right time to the right place to be born of the right woman on the right day to do all the things that He did to go to the cross, voluntarily lay down His life for sinners, rise again, ascend to the Father. It's all one story. It's all connected and you can't leave out parts of it and understand the whole. So, it's really important. It's not what you suppose. They're not drunk. This is from the prophet Joel. This is God's plan, number four. Now what's going to happen here is Peter is going to quote Joel 2, 28 through 32. It is one of the most fascinating examples where the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament and applied in a powerful way. Now before we read this section, these next five verses, I want to say two things about them. First of all, Um, You know, we preach from the New American Standard Bible here, uh, and that's the version that you will see on the slides when I I show these to you. But you'll notice in the New American Standard Bible, it is printed in all caps. That's to make it clear that the words come directly from the Old Testament. That's a helpful feature I really appreciate about the New American Standard Bible. You can look at a page and the all caps stand out to you. That is a, just a, a visual way of portraying to you all this is interconnected. This is somebody in the New Testament building their message on what is revealed in the Old Testament. It's all interconnected. It's one story, it's one plan. Now, it's all caps in your Bible. This is not a text message. Peter was not shouting. Well, he raised his voice because it was a big crowd. But second thing about this. In the way that it was revealed to Joel and recorded in his book, it was uh, written in the form of poetry. That means the primary characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. It's written in in two line pairs. Sometimes it's say something and then say the same thing again in different words. Or say one thing and then contrast it in two. in in different words. Sometimes the parallelism is more sophisticated, like line A, line B, and then repeat the message of B, and then repeat the message of A. There's multiple versions of contrasts and chiasm and other things that, that you can do with that. But that's the primary characteristic of it, is that it's Hebrew poetry. Now, when you translate poetry from one language to another, you can get the meanings of the words pretty uh, precisely, but it's impossible to maintain the poetic form. You can't uh, reduplicate the meter or the rhyme or anything um, like that, um, and it's, it's much more difficult, if you will, to verbally translate. So the best we can do in our English Bibles when we are recording something that's Hebrew poetry is to print it in the line-by-line format rather than as regular prose. And so that ought to tip you off if you see things where it's not just you know, in paragraph form, it's line by line, it's almost certainly a poetic quotation. Now there are only a few English words that you'll find in your translation that Peter wove in among the words of Joel. If you take this passage and compare it to, uh, put it in parallel columns, Acts 2, 17 through 21 with Joel 2, 28 through 32, which I did this week. It's identical. He quoted this um, very, very effectively. I don't think that he had the other 11 guys with him unfurl a big long scroll of the book of Joel. He knew this. This was the part of the Holy Spirit bringing to their minds everything they needed to know. All right, we'll look at these five verses and then make some comments. Acts two seventeen through 21. And it shall be in the last days, God says, That I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. (coughs) And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." So what happened on that day was not a drunken display. It was an important development in the plan of God. It was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, it starts out in the last days. Last days is common Old Testament terminology pointing to the time when the Messiah would come to set up His kingdom. You heard Jesus refer in Matthew uh, 12, that this will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come, meaning now or in the kingdom. That, that, their perspective was there's this age, Messiah comes, and the kingdom comes with Him. So the last days is when Messiah would come and set up His kingdom. The arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter is making this point, is an essential step in the development of the kingdom program of God. Now, no one in those days, including the prophets themselves and here in the time of the apostles, clearly understood that there would be two comings of the Messiah and that there would be a long time between them. First Peter chapter 1 even mentions that, uh, especially I think he's referring to Isaiah. He writes about Messiah coming and he's going to be this glorious king, but he writes about Messiah coming. He's going to be this suffering servant who is crucified. Which is it? Both. Two comings. Two different things. To accomplish the work of redemption. To bring the kingdom to earth. But they didn't, that wasn't revealed until the New Testament. Now we live in that in-between era. Appropriately known as the church age. But Jesus coming to earth ushered in the last days. The last days have lasted now more than 2,000 years. And during this time, God has begun calling Gentiles to salvation, not just Jews. And He has included the believing Jews with the believing Gentiles. But when you're a Gentile and you become a Christian, it doesn't mean you get, a, you get a, a, an Israeli passport, Jew and Gentile together become the body of Christ. And at the same time, while he's doing that, he is chastening Israel for her unbelief. Now, as you read Joel's prophecy, understand it will not be completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, that 1,000-year period following the second coming of Jesus but what happened on that day of Pentecost was a step in the development toward that kingdom coming to earth. This was just a sample of the power of the Holy Spirit that will be normal in the kingdom. This was a, this was a preview, if you will, or more, like, more than just a preview, more like a sampler it really was the power of the Holy Spirit. That really was the Holy Spirit enabling them to speak in those languages. That really was the Holy Spirit who made the big racket. So we're getting this little um, preview of things. But understand, we in this era, it's between the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, He is the King. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who so set up the kingdom on earth. But right now, the King is not present So many of Jesus' parables have to do with this era of the kingdom of God when the king is away and he will come back. But we who now put our faith in this Savior, the ones who are indwelt by this Holy Spirit, we have a foretaste of kingdom life. Our status now is what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Say, wait a second. He's not here. He's not sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. This isn't the kingdom. No, but I'm a citizen of it. So we are now ambassadors for a foreign entity, the kingdom. We've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. We have the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. We have the spiritual blessings that will be fully manifested in the kingdom. And in His millennial kingdom, God will pour forth of His Spirit on, and notice He says, all mankind. Because it's going to be Jews and Gentiles. Now, It's also clear, as you read through Joel's prophecy here, that the things Joel mentioned are not all fulfilled in this age. We don't know what all kinds of prophesying and dreams and visions will be more commonplace during the millennium. We know that there was prophecy in the early church, but that revelatory kind of prophecy has ceased for now. That gift of tongues has ceased and there's a reason for that explained in 1 Corinthians 14. But we also know that we have not seen the wonders in the sky above and the signs beneath. He's not talking about beautiful sunrises and sunsets and majestic vistas. Those wonders didn't happen at Pentecost. There was no blood and fire and vapor of smoke. There was the tongues of fire but he's talking about real fire the the sun was not turned into darkness nor was the moon turned into blood those phenomena are yet to come with what Joel calls the great and glorious day of the lord so last days that's when the messiah comes the king is here the day of the lord is a a phrase that's used several different ways in the New Testament, but there's an overarching theme to them. It's the day when the Lord takes over. The day of of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is sometimes used in certain passages (coughs) to refer to some time when God does a certain kind of judging. But the way it's used in this passage, it's directly related to the things that will happen at the second coming of Christ. Jesus is the Lord, and when He is unveiled, what a day that is. You might even call that the day of the Lord. But it's probably broader than that. If you check out the celestial miracles that are going to happen when Jesus returns, Matthew 24 and Revelation 19, aha, it sounds a whole lot like what Joel was referring to. Same king, all part of the same plan Something new is happening now. Now, there are several uses of Day of the Lord, as as I said, but I think you'll do fine if you think of it as the great and glorious Day of the Lord begins with the next event on God's calendar, the rapture of the church. He removes His people from the earth. Then the 70th week of Daniel, the, the tribulation time building up to the second coming of Christ, And the millennial kingdom on earth, the great white throne judgment and the setting up of the new heavens and the new earth, roll all that together, stick it under the label, the great and glorious day of the Lord, and I think you'll have a pretty good understanding. So another observation about this extended quotation from Joel is that Peter stopped before the part where Joel predicts the final redemption of the nation of Israel and the judgment of all nations. Now in Joel, it's the end of a chapter, but forget the chapter break. That wasn't there when Joel wrote it. And Peter stopped there. So all of those prophecies given through Joel will be completely fulfilled when the kingdom comes. And Peter's saying, here's your sampler. Here's your... Here's your, your, your little appetizer of what is to come. Now, it is quite easy to get caught up in dissecting this use of the Old Testament in the New Testament by Peter. Uh, people argue about what is fulfilled, what's not fulfilled, what is merely pictured what might be fulfilled in different ways at different times. Some people use the terminology prefillment and fulfillment or partial fulfillment and total uh, fulfillment. I'm trying to figure out all the nuances of Peter's use of the Old Testament. And I say, you know, enough ink has already been spilled, enough bandwidth has already been chewed up on that. Let's just get the big picture here. I urge you to see what Peter did With this quotation, he is saying the new covenant has arrived. The old covenant is now obsolete. Christ is beginning to build his church. And when we get to the end of this sermon, oh, wow, what a kickoff day for the beginning of the church, the body of Christ. Um, God is still calling Jews the message is still the same repent and turn to the lord jesus christ but now those believing jews are going to be united into one new creation the body of christ otherwise god is showing that he he is indeed fulfilling the promise that a partial hardening has happened to israel until the fullness of the gentiles comes in that's the way it's worded in romans chapter 11 verse 25 and so what peter's saying is guys you know there's this plan. There is going to be the kingdom on earth. You know that Jesus was was crucified and buried and He rose again and He ascended to the Father. That wasn't what you were expecting without a kingdom on earth. But this is the unrolling of that plan and you are here on a crucial day in all of history to witness this part of it. Wow. Peter is telling his people, Men of Judea, you locals, all you who live in Jerusalem, no matter where you came from for the day of Pentecost, this is exactly what God has planned, and God's plan is in full force. It's on schedule. Jesus is the Messiah, He is the King. The kingdom of God is coming. Now, it isn't coming right now in the earthly manifestation you hoped for. You don't know the times or the epics which God has has determined, but now you have the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses, just as he said. So what's Peter saying? Guys, this is really important. This is not a bunch of drunks, as you suppose. This is from the prophet Joel. This is God's plan. And number five, this is about Jesus. It's imperative we don't stop without the next two verses. Verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Again, he's saying, okay, quiet on the set. This is important. This is super important. This is the most important part of what's so super important. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene. Okay, go ahead and stick a dagger in him. He's from that hick village up in Galilee. Jesus, the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. (laughs) He did a lot of those miracles right in Jerusalem. He did even more in Galilee. He did more over in Perea. He did some around the Decapolis. He even did some on Gentile turf. Everybody that had heard anything about Jesus had at least heard of the miracles, if not witnessed them. And of course, the leaders of the Jews said, all by the power of Satan. Well, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Peter is saying, get the message. Get the message. This is the next step in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. It's not a shock. Well, it might be a shock, but it wasn't Um, It wasn't without being predicted, and make no mistake about it. I know you heard that sound and wondered if a tornado was ripping through this side of Jerusalem. If you were close enough to see it, you saw what looked like tongues of fire resting on all 120 of us. I know you heard about the mighty deeds of God and you heard them in your own language from people who don't know your own language. This is glorious. But make no mistake, this is about Jesus. You cannot ignore Him and have any part in the kingdom of God. He is the one and only way to God. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, but through Him. Don't sneer about His roots in Galilee, even if you think there's nothing there except a bunch of uneducated rednecks. Don't dismiss the the eternal significance of all those miracles and wonders of signs which God performed, all of which attested to Jesus' deity. Don't forget it was your spiritual leaders who rejected Him and delivered Him over to be crucified. And that's why God is now turning primarily to the Gentiles. This was all done, remember it's connected, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Predetermined plan is a combination of two Greek words that means that God marked this off as His plan according to His own counsel, which he set before the foundation of the world. Uh, One of the words here predetermined, uh, our word horizon comes from it. Horizo is to mark off the horizon. That's where we're going. You know, you're driving across a long, long, straight, flat road, and there's the point at which your vision runs out. You can't see past it. God sets the point where the road is going to take us. This is the plan of God. And don't mistake it, it all runs through Jesus. There is no hope for anyone who rejects Him. It's the one plan of God. Now, this Jesus, who came? Who was the King? Who is the King? Who did all of those great miracles? He was delivered over By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And what happened? You nailed Him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. We'll come back to that phrase in later sermons. But understand, this was also according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, predetermined plan, setting from afar off what the horizon is. Foreknowledge of God, foreknowledge is a fancy word that means to determine a relationship in advance. A lot of people really cop out on what this word means and they get it very wrong. Foreknowledge does not mean that God pulled back the curtains of time, looked into the future, and saw what was going to happen. He knows that all the time. Knows the beginning from the end because he lives outside of time. God doesn't have a tomorrow. It's all now. Let that percolate for a while and you'll have smoke coming out of your ears. Now some people who chafe at the Bible's teaching of the doctrine of election which says God chose who will be saved. Some people don't like that. They fight against it. They argue against it. They reason against it. They make up all kinds of things against it. Well, they say that the foreknowledge of God means that He peeked ahead and He saw who would choose Christ, so He chose them according to that foreknowledge that He gained by looking into the future. Now, I understand why people say that. They don't think it's fair that God chose. They don't, they don't like that idea. Some of them extrapolate to say, well, that means that there's some people that absolutely can't be saved, and that Christ didn't die for them. And the Bible never says that. He calls all men, everyone, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. So don't overstate what that says. The doctrine of salvation, a doctrine of election, is the only explanation what why any of us sin-cursed pea brains ever did come to faith. Because it's all of Him. I wouldn't do it on my own. But that definition of foreknowledge—that He looked ahead and saw who would choose Him—is forever proven wrong by this passage. Just try to apply it to this passage. God pulled aside the curtains peeked into the future and said, Jesus is going to be the Messiah. How much sense does that make? Well, you can't change the meaning of a word to something else to know as in Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. That sense of, of knowledge is a, a loving, personal, knowing relationship. Foreknowledge means predetermining that relationship which God predetermined for you if you're in Christ today and you have no explanation for it except God did it. I couldn't. And I had no interest in trying. God did it. So, it was exactly according to His plan. He sent His Son, God the Son. It was their plan from eternity past. He sent His Son at exactly the right time to come, to die for your sins so that you can be saved. It's all the plan of God. Jesus died a totally undeserved death, put together or brought about at the hands of godless men who put Him to death Jesus was the only innocent man ever died ever to die ever to be killed God raised him from the dead 1 Corinthians says that the good news the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and he rose again the 3rd day according to the scriptures The Scriptures, the Scriptures, the Scriptures. God's plan, God's plan, God's plan from beginning to end. This event in Acts chapter 2 is one of the spectacular days in the unfolding of that plan. We must believe in Him in order to have life. Yeah, this is God's plan. And it's about Jesus. So, will you call upon the Lord and be saved? Did you catch the punchline of Peter's quote from Joel? The very end of it. It's Joel 2.32 in the Old Testament, Acts 2.21 in our text. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You heard that sound? You ran over here with the crowd? You're saying, what does it mean? It means you can be saved. Now keep coming back here to hear the rest of this marvelous sermon of Peter. Go ahead and read it on your own if you'd like. But don't just drink in the beauty of the unity and the connectivity of the whole Bible as one story from beginning to end. Don't leave it there. Don't just say, Oh my, that was nice. I learned so much. It's here for one reason. You can be saved. You may have heard countless sermons, but if you have never repented and called on the name of Jesus, what does that mean? The name of Jesus is everything that he stands for, calling on him to save you because you can't. If you outstripped every human being that has ever lived in the category of good works, you would fall infinitely short of being good enough if you've ever once sinned. And you've done that probably since the sun came up. Understand, it's his work call out to Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and its just penalty which you deserve which I deserve now I couldn't resist it last time we were in Acts I can't resist it again today maybe next week we'll get to it but would you skip down to verses 38 and 39 after the rest of his sermon these people, it says they were cut to the quick. I like the King Jamesy part of that. Pierced through in their hearts, understanding, we have a sin problem, we need a Savior. What do we do? And that's where we have this in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Peter said to them, repent. And that is an aorist active imperative, which doesn't mean a thing to you, but it's a... That's the most urgent kind of command. You can say, It's a good idea to repent. You should repent. I urge you to repent. No, this is saying, Repent! You, now, today, this is the day. Like Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. If you don't stand a 100% relying on Christ and Him alone and nothing else to save you from the penalty you deserve, which is an eternity in the lake of fire being tortured day and night forever and ever. If you don't know for sure that's not your destiny, you're not in Christ, today is the day. Call on the name of the Lord. And if you have, oh, what good news do we have to tell the people that are still headed for that horrible lake of fire? Repent. And each of you, you can't get there on anybody else's coattails, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus. We'll talk about that. They just saw the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You think it was miraculous what those people were doing? You can have that same Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Now, do you see a subtlety there? You and your children. He's talking to the men of Judea and you who are dwelling in Jerusalem. To you Jews now. And exact same message for all who are far off. Who's that? That's all the Gentiles. And my friends... If you didn't know that you were mentioned in the Bible, you are, and there's one place right there. You who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to Himself. We are about 6,000 miles from that place. We are 20 centuries from that time. We are far off, and today God is calling every single one here who has not already put their trust in Christ, repent, put your faith in the Savior. And you, too, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you done that? Today is the very best day to be saved. Will you call on the Lord? Let's pray. Yes, Father, we call on you. We know all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. We know the wages of our sin is death, that is what we deserve, but Christ died in our place while we were yet sinners. Oh, Father, today, the perfect day for someone here to call on the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. And even we who have called on you, what? today's the perfect day for us to be reminded it is all of you it is all your work we cannot save ourselves and remind us too that the that the invitation is universal so send us from this place with the message of the good news of our savior jesus christ who died for our sins that we might have eternal life have your way with us all we pray in jesus name Amen.